Well, I tell you, there's something that I have a hard time getting over, that I have a daughter in college. That is one of those things that blows me away when I think that 19 years ago this month, she was born, and I remember how small she was and innocent she was and how naive she was to believe that her parents actually knew something. Um, in fact, when I, when I think, I think it's great that God makes babies ignorant and dumb because it makes us look like geniuses whenever you have your first baby and you enter into this whole parenting gig. And uh, if Jordan only knew how little we knew going into parenting, she would have spoken up and said, let me stay at the hospital and let these nurses raise me because uh, we knew so little going into this thing that, uh, again, I, I, just, I can remember being overwhelmed with it all, being overwhelmed with the parenting scene, being overwhelmed with the feelings of what does that cry mean? What is that odor? What is that thing? You know, all this coming out of this precious baby. And, uh, and yet I don't know what it's saying to me. I mean, if God could have put a meter on its head that said, this is what I'm saying to you, or out comes a receipt that tells you this is what I'm trying to communicate to you, it would have made it a lot easier. But can you imagine 23-year-olds, and I know y'all were all much older and wiser than, 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 than we were, but uh, as 23-year-olds, married just around two years at that point, and, and here we are sitting there, and we've, we're, we're like hours before this, we were footloose, fancy-free, doing what we wanted to do. Everybody was saying, your world's about to get changed. And then, you know, we're, so we're just going on, and we're going, and we're doing, and, and uh, whatever, you know, 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds do at that, at that time. And then, in a matter of minutes, our world was rocked. Our world was changed, the priorities were changed, schedules was changed, sleep was changed, responsibility factor was changed. Our even purpose in life was under, under scrutiny at that point. Wondering why, you know, why all this. And we were excited, yes, but we had this overwhelming sense of responsibility. And of course, the lack of sleep just compounds everything uh, in that. And I know, can I get a witness out there? Has anybody ever gone through this? Or am I just talking to the air? All right, good, good. Anyway, you know, when you move from expecting to being, there's a big difference in that. When you're expecting, you're reading books like what to expect when you're expecting or what to expect in the first year. And then when you move from expecting to being, all the book stuff, maybe it helps, but man, it's just like Katie bar the door, just kind of survival mode. And, and you try to raise this child up. And, and, and I can remember, you know, up until that point of having, having our first child, you know, I, I remember questioning everything about, you know, parents say this, in-laws say this. You just question everything. And then when you have a baby... You have questions about everything, all right? It's like you don't know as much as you thought you knew in all of your, in all of your great wisdom. I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. But I just kind of want to now turn, turn the page and go into the book of Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua didn't have any babies that we know of in this chapter, so it has nothing to do with babies here. But there is something that happens in Joshua's life that kind of jars him. And we're going to look at that today 
fact, we're going to start studying through the book of, of Joshua. We're not going to be hitting it in the sense that verse by verse or chapter by chapter. We're going to be hitting it more in larger skips, about 30,000 feet, going from theme to theme. Major epic changes and shifts that go on in the book of Joshua. We're going to hit those. And I want us to, to kind of look in the mirror as we look at Joshua. I want us to look metaphorically at this. Uh, I want us to look in some kind of a parallel form. Uh, we're going to remain true to the historical text and the historical narrative all the way through. But there's something about this as we look into the future. As we move from expecting to being. And that, that chasm of difference between the two. And expecting to being and envisioning to reality. As we move through that, that chasm, however long or short it may take, it will change us. It will change you. It should change you. But that's okay. I know that we like things to be pretty predictable. We kind of work into ruts. And be careful of those ruts, okay? Because they're not always the right moves for you. So we've got to be careful. Sometimes it's just good to break out of a rut just to get out of the rut. But um, I think God stretches us, though. We go through seasons of stretches, seasons where God grows us. Thank God it's not a lifetime like that. Otherwise, we just wear ourselves out. But there are seasons that he steps in in an epic kind of way, and he stretches us, makes us, morphs us, changes us, grows us. And we can resist the growth. We can push back and say, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. And we can do that same in our own life in, in every way. But I want to say that let's go there. Let's think about where we might parallel along with the story of Joshua and see where we might fit into the, into the scheme. Now, you've got to go back to last week if you were here, and I'm assuming, and I'm, that's a large assumption, that you heard last week's message um, or you watched it or something like that if you were away. But, but, but the point would be is you've got to go back to last week and you've got to kind of pick up there with the great Moses. Because I, I want to say to some respect that I think we have a Moses generation in our church. And this parallel is going to start here with Moses because I think that Moses represents our first decade as a church. I think there's a Moses generation that makes up Grace Point Church. And that, that first kind of laying the foundation for who we are, it, it was the Moses. Now, you got to remember who Moses was. Moses was a patriarch. Moses was, if you look in the, in the Hebrew Judaism Hall of Faith, and you look at the greatest people ever to lead the nation of Israel, you're going to find Abraham as the father of the nations. But right next to Abraham, you're going to find you're going to find Moses. Moses was, he, he was monumental. And the, and the era in which he led was, 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 was amazing. And I want to say that the first decade families, I want to say that the families that helped founded this church, I want to say that those who went with us for the first five years when we were living out of a suitcase and we didn't know where we were going to meet from time to time and week to week, I want to call you the Moses generation. Because... That Moses generation, it took a whole lot of faith. It took a whole lot of belief in something that wasn't seen. And when, when God was telling Moses to take the people of Israel who had been there for, for a generation anyway and tell them to take them to a promised land, what? Well, what do you mean? I've never seen this promised land. He was taking him to a place that they'd never seen. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't have everything figured out. He didn't know how to get past the superpower of Pharaoh. But yet there was something about them 
Something about the Moses. Something about Moses that said, yes, we can do this. And yes, God's calling us to do this. And so he marches out into the, into the wilderness. Now, last week we picked up with that. And we, we had the committee of 12 that went into the promised land. And the committee came back out and 10 voted no and 2 voted yes. And we know that not always is God in the committees. Because God got pretty ang- angry at that point. He said, listen, okay, listen, you're going to go on a vote instead of my voice. A vote, voice, vote, voice. You're going to go on a vote. Okay, there, here you, here you go. You just have the wilderness. You just take it for the next 40 years and just live out there until this generation dies off and moves on. Now, I'm thankful, and I'm not saying we didn't have, but I want to say on a large 30,000-foot scale, we didn't have 40 years in the wilderness. We didn't have a generation of faithless people, and I'm thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful that whenever we had vision to, to buy land of 20 acres, that, 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 that when we were 200 people, and, and you know, really the rule of thumb for churches is that you need one acre per 100. So really, if you think about it, if we were 200 people, how many acres do you need? Two. I mean, then that, that means to park them, to educate them, to have the children's programs, to have the worship center, things like that. That's just the church's rule of thumb, one to 100. And so really, if we were 200 people, then if we would have had acreage of, 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 of two or three or four, then we were really, that would have been sufficient for us. But we had people, Moses kind of people, who said, you know, God's got something bigger here. And we may be small and we may be pretty insignificant in the, in, in, in the pond of, 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 of life, of dropping us into the pond. But God is up to something. And we may not have a master plan for this, but we know a master who has a plan. And the master has a plan and we're going to get on his plan and we're just going to see where it goes. And so it was kind of a beautiful journey. And so I want to say that there's some Moses people in this room today. And I want to say the Moses people were the people of our first decade, especially those early decade people, because the first five years we were portable and we didn't know where we were going to meet. And there was, we literally had people considering us cult, a cult because we didn't have a facility and we were meeting in a high school. So let me just ask, if you were with us in those portable days of the high school, would you stand up? Would you stand up right now? All right. These are our Moses people. Give them a hand. Great people. Great people. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, I'm not trying to blow their head up and all that kind of stuff. But I want to say that when you're starting a church and you don't have anything but, a, but an A-frame sign on the corner for a sign, it takes a lot of faith to go to the Reagan Elementary School or the Holiday Inn Express and say, I'm going to go to church. Because that's just... It just doesn't fit into our paradigm. And so I want to say that, that we had a Moses generation. And there was something about that Moses generation that was pretty cool because that generation were the ones who were able to look at this campus where we're at today. And they were able to say, you know, I've always been, and this is true of me. This was true of me. I've always been in a church where somebody else paid for the seats. Somebody else bought the Bibles. Somebody else paid for the band. Somebody else did all of that. We get to be the generation that digs the dirt. We get to be, our children get to be the ones who help make the sacrifice to buy these things that we don't have. So it's pretty cool to think about that Moses generation. But let me tell you, all those people who just stood up, 
God's not finished with you, okay? Just because you were a part of the Moses generation doesn't mean that God doesn't have you a part of the second decade. In fact, if you, I love this verse. And let it be said of me, and let it be said of you in our own life, Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, it says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor un, uh, un, uh, unabated. Here's a man at 120 that was still kicking the dirt around. Here was a man who was still plowing up new dirt. Here was a man that had not lost the vision for the promised land. And I hope that we'll have a generation, that we'll be a generation, that the generation that was before us, the first decade families, will move with us into the second decade un, unabated in vigor and undimmed in vision. I would pray that that would be you. Let me talk about the second decade. This is the Joshua decade. And again, I've said there's a parallel, there's a metaphor that we're going through here. And throughout the rest of this series through Joshua, which we'll study it through the month of October, when you hear the word Joshua, when you hear about Joshua, when you think about Joshua and Caleb, because those were the only two who had the faith to go into the promised land, when you hear about them, put yourself, put yourself, insert yourself, insert yourself. Because that is us today. Now, you may not say, hey, I'm out of here, I'm checking out, I'm done. If you're not a Joshua, that's fine. And I really am okay with that. That's why today I'm coming forward and I'm saying, listen, what we need to move forward are Joshua's. The only way we will move forward is to have Joshua's. We need Joshua's to rise up. Joshua had big sandals to fill. Can you imagine following Moses? (laughs) There's no way I would even envy that position because the only way you can go is down after Moses, right? I mean, when you're Mo, you're Mo, all right? And you cross, you, you cross sea and you, 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 you beat Pharaoh. And, I mean, you're Mo. And there's a lot of momentum behind Mo, all right? And here he is, and he's stepping into those shoes. Big shoes to fill. And I want to say the same faith that our first decade Moses has had, Joshua's need to learn from. We need to borrow from. We, we need to look at them. And we're going to come back and we're going to do a whole lot more with Joshua throughout this series. But I want to talk about another element. It's the Jordan River. The Jordan River was an important part of the going into the promised land. In fact, the Jordan River was the most important part before you could even get into the promised land. The Jordan River bordered the promised land. So if you don't go across the Jordan River, you don't go into the promised land. The Jordan River are current challenges, present challenges that we face. Because when you think about what what Joshua was going to have to lead the people through, he was going to have to take them across to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He was going to have to encounter them, the big giants that we heard about last week, But before he could encounter them, before he could accomplish the mission of conquering and taking the promised land, he had to first conquer the present challenge of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a picture of our present challenges. Now, challenges that, not not problems, but yet maybe problems, but yet maybe opportunities, however you want to label it. But we have got a Jordan River in front of us. Now, you've got to understand something about the Jordan River because Moses wasn't just looking at a creek, a bubbling brook. He was not looking at 
just something that was a meandering, lazy river ride. This was something that had waves. This was something that had a current. This was something that had rapids. This was something that had whirlpools. This is something that you don't put your women and children across on a little canoe to get to the other side. Especially if you got the Canaanites and the other, side, other people on the other side waiting for you. This is something that's going to take God at work and them at work together to traverse this, to go through this. Because not only, not only was it the Jordan River, but it was also a flooding Jordan River. This is what it says in the book of Joshua chapter 3 verse 15, just to give a picture, a concept of it. He said this, he said, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So indicating that they're really getting ready to cross over into the Jordan land at harvest time. The banks are overflowing. We've got some issues. We've got some challenges. First things first for us. First things first. Before we can take the promised land, listen to this, we've got to traverse the Jordan River. We've got to get across the overflowing banks of the Jordan River. We've got to deal with an issue. We've got to prepare the container before we can fill it. We've got to get our, 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 ourselves across the river, the challenging, the rapids, the overflowing, the whirlpools that are spinning in our own presence. Now, what is it? Now, just hang with me on this because this is very foundational throughout this entire series. When you bring it back to the church, when you bring it back to who we are here present day, not the Jordan River metaphorically, but who we are today, what would be some issues, some, some things that could throw us off, that could get us off of kingdom business? And there's just a list of them, and, and these are my list, but I've seen them. I have seen them either firsthand, experienced them, or in third person watching them into another church. This is what will cause a church to die on this side of the Jordan River instead of crossing over. Visionlessness or being visionless. Not having a direction. Not having an idea. Not having a dream. Morals or ethical failures among pastoral team, among, among deacons or leadership, among body life group leaders. Moral failures will bring a church down quickly. Ethical issues will bring a church down quickly. A lack of identity in the community. When the church begins to exist for the church and only for the church, and it's all about keeping themselves warm, happy, and fed, and they're no longer a church for the community, that will be a church that has become inward, and they will begin to focus on themselves and be all about themselves. Very dangerous. I've seen it happen many times, that one for sure. Financial limitations. If there's not enough resources for the ministry, you just simply have to say, no, we can't do it. People limitations. Now, this could be leadership. This could be, it could be people within the congregation. It could be members. It could be volunteer leadership, deacons, elders, whatever the case may be. Just people limitations. Passionless and complacency. Man, that is, that I think probably grips the American church more today than anything else I witness. It's just absolute complacency. Just passionless complacency. Koinonitis, probably not, not your everyday word that you throw around. It actually comes from the Greek word koine, which means um, 
fellowship or coming together. And the idea is whenever a church develops koinonitis, it means they actually get to the point that they don't look outside anymore and it becomes all about them. All right, some of these blend together. Body life groups can do this to where they become just their full, happy group and they're not willing to multiply. They're not willing to become. They're not willing to reproduce. Very dangerous for a church to reach into koinonitis. But here's another one. And I've seen this happen, and I can take you to the churches that did not deal well with this one. Space limitations. When the shoe begins to tell the foot how big it can get, then you've got an issue on your hand. Now, out of all of these issues that I just pointed out there, the only positive one that I see that has positive implications to it is space limitations. Churches that are passionless and visionless, churches that have moral and ethical failures, churches that don't have vision, that don't have leadership to lead the way or lack community connections, they typically don't have space limitations. They typically have plenty of space, plenty of parking, plenty of everything. And they're fine. Their banks of their Jordan River aren't f- overflowing. They've got other issues they've got to deal with. And I want to say as pastor that I don't see us dealing with any of these. Thank the Lord no moral ethical failures. Thank the Lord that we don't have a lack of identity in our community. Thank the Lord that all these other things aren't there except for one. We're dealing with a space limitation issue that can become an absolute hurdle for us that we're going to have to deal with. And I want us to understand our overflowing banks of the Jordan River, our own personal overflowing banks of the Jordan River. To kind of get a conceptual of this, you need to really kind of hang with me on this because when you look around right now, are there any empty seats in this room? Yes, there's plenty. When you pulled in, were there any empty parking spots? Yes, there were plenty. Whenever you went and dropped off your kids, were there still space in the classrooms? Yes, there were plenty. Probably because there's three gatherings. Now, I think in an ideal world, we would be down to two gatherings where we could have an easier chance, I've heard people say this many times, that I don't know people anymore because they come to the third gathering and I'm in the first gathering. Those are issues that you face whenever you have space limitations. We went to three gatherings not because we like doing this three times and because we like working in those classrooms three times. It's because we had to. See, we had several things that as soon as we moved into our campus, we began to outgrow. Began to outgrow. Began to be our Jordan Bank expanding on us. Let me give them to you in the order that we encountered them. The first one that we encountered was in our community connections area. That's kind of out in the foyer area. Go ahead and roll that slide, guys. Up in the community connections area is the first one that we dealt with. And because what we did with that one is we have a space that was designed for about 425 people, all right? Square footage, flow, have some kind of flow, have some kind of people space. Now, if you want to be face-to-face and everybody take their own little square out there, that's different. But if you want to have some kind of a crowd flow in that area, but on a Sunday, we will rotate through that area 700 or more people. And especially if you come to the end of this service and the beginning of the third service, because our second service is full and over. Flowing. We keep pushing people out to our first service and our third service. So we've got issues in that. And we knew that within the first few months of being in this building. We grew 40% in four months. And we knew immediately that 
the designer, the builder, the, the committee, and I was on that committee, we missed that area. That was an area that all it is is traffic flow issues. There's not a place that you can sit down and connect. Now, a coffee shop, sure, but once it's full, it's full. And when you get all that crowd out there, there's no intimate connecting points out there. We don't see that as healthy. For a church that wants to pride itself on personalization and connectivity. Here's the second area that we outgrew. Now, again, you look around, worship area. The worship space is designed for, there's 450 seats in this room. Now, there's 450 seats in this room. Granted, there's lots of empty seats. You come to the third service, it'll look about like this. There's empty seats. When we went to two services on Easter after we moved into here, we went from one service to two services in six months. And then the next Easter, we went to three services. And at that point, we have constantly been trying to push people out to the first service and to the third service as we've gone along. Because here's a little rule. Even though we have 450 seats, we have 617 people in here. That's just on an average in this room on a Sunday. Now, the problem is is that you really don't have 450 seats. You actually only have about 360 seats because people like their space. Now, I'm going to just do a test in this room. If you're sitting next to someone you know right now, right, I mean bum to bum, you're sitting next to them right now, then you're typical, all right? But if you don't know that person who's right next to you, beyond you, you probably have a chair between you or two or three or four. Is that about right? And if you're a guy, you might even have a, if you're a guy to guy, you might have two chairs anyway. Because we don't like that as personal space. I go to a movie theater, I want a guy, I want a space between me and another guy. No, 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 no arms rubbing, shoulders rubbing kind of stuff. All right, I like my space. People are funny. They come to church. Can you believe it? They want the same thing. So really, churches, I hate to say it, because I could be very happy with an African model church meet under a tree and just sit on the ground. I am very happy with that model. But we realize that this room can only set 360 people on a given Sunday. Uh, on a given service, excuse me. And we want to have two services, not three services. For a, a lot of the connectivity reasons, uh, obviously. Here's another way. Real quickly, parking. We designed a parking lot for 240. We have 451 cars out there on a Sunday. This is the order that we encountered these problems. And at every turn, we've been able to address them. We added more parking, okay? Next one, WeWorld. This was our most recent opportunity, all right, that we faced. Whenever we had to start closing WeWorld classrooms, we had to start closing them week after week in multiple classrooms on a week. It was one of Sarah Williams' greatest angst that she had to go through. And I just had to say, you've got to do it. We were having teacher retention issues. Kids were not learning. And it was one of those things that we just had to do. We've got a Wii World that is really is designed for 145, but we'll have 185. And the only reason we can have 145 is we've kicked all the grade schoolers out of this building. This, when we designed this facility, this side of the building was going to be preschool. This side was going to be uh, grade school. It was going to be a real easy fit on both sides. But because we have, over, because we have, our preschool has grown, 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 and our children has grown, 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 what we've had to do is we've had to kick all the children out except for one little corner room over here called the loft. And now this side and this side is all preschool. So don't let, don't be deceived by that number. 
that 145 to 185 doesn't seem like that big of a spread. That's only because we've kicked the grade school kids out. Thus comes the trailer park. Thus comes the village. The children. Now, this is interesting. I learned this just recently. We have a room over here that's designed for learning the loft, what we call it. It's designed for 45 children. In the second service alone, we'll have 80 children in there. Is there an issue with that, Fire Marshal? Okay. Would you sit in the next two services as well? 45, 80, every Sunday next door. That's an issue. It's an issue for your children. It's an issue for my children. So we might look in here and say, hey, I don't feel an urgent need. Hey, I'm sitting fat, warm, and fed. I'm okay. But we've got to look at this at a much larger picture. We've got some issues, some opportunities. And not only that, is all the kids that we kicked out of this building, we put out in the village, guess what? Those buildings have a drop-dead timeline that they've got to be off. We can't even store them in the back. They've got to be off the grounds. And that's 2012, or 2013. So this is only a Band-Aid to help us out. Guys and gals, I want to bring us back to the verse. Verse 15, our overflowing banks is what we're dealing with. We've got some real issues. This is not new. This is not a new issue. Even literally, physically, Elisha had an issue. He picked up where Elijah left off in, in leading the prophets, and the prophets were growing, the followers of Christ were growing. And whenever Elisha comes back, after Elijah is taking up into a whirlwind, he comes back to lead the prophets. This is what he said. He said this, he, uh, and you can read it over in Second uh, Kings chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He said, the, group, the groups of the prophets said to Elisha, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let's go. I love it that he didn't put it on Elisha. Let's go to the Jordan. Everyone there, everyone can get a log and build a place. I want us to notice something here. That everyone shares in the problem or opportunity, if you want to use Sarah Williams' word. Everyone is a part of the solution. You may not have kids. Your kids may be gone. Your kids may be youth. You may not even have, whatever the case may be. But we have a problem. That we've got to address. Because in every indicator of our church, every indicator of measurement, every indicator of space, we are tapped. And we've got to deal with it. But here's another thing we need to look at metaphorically. The promised land. The promised land represents our future destiny. Now notice this, that the, that the people of Israel, it wasn't the mission of God to just cross rivers and become river rats. Even though they crossed the sea, the Red Sea, on dry land, and even though they're going to cross the Jordan on dry land, I know I'm still in the story from you, but it wasn't God's goal to just cross rivers and seas. It was God's plan for them to occupy the promised land. That's God's ultimate goal. Listen, today, it's not my goal, I'll promise you, it's not the goal of our leadership to build churches and to go into church building business. In fact, I have pushed back on the idea of building for years. When we went to three services, I had people start asking me, when are we going to go back to two? So when we build, when we can create space. And I was wore out from the first campaign in moving in. So I have been one of the latest joiners in this whole movement. 
Because it's not about the building. I know the building is just a toolbox. It's just getting across the river to the promised land. It was Alan Redpath who said they brought him, he brought them out to bring them in because it wasn't about it wasn't about the river. It was about the promised land. It wasn't about getting them to the edge and looking at the swelling or swirling water. It was about getting them into the promised land. And I don't want to make it about the building. And my commitment to you as the pastor that we won't make our church about building edifices to me or anybody else. We've got probably one of the most functional, efficient facilities. When you have baseboard carpet and you use VCT tile in your hallways, you have the most efficient facility you can have. We're not about grandiose. We're about functionality. And yes, it's going to cause all of us, listen, all members of Grace Point, will need to retrofit the paying of this building into their own personal budgets. It's going to the river and getting a log and building something that we can all get into. But you know why I'm willing to do that? Why I'm willing to take my own monies and hopefully you'll take your own monies and put it into the pot and make this happen? It's because it's not about the building. If it was about the building, I would be so much against it. It's about the children. It's about the space. It's about worshipers. It's about creating community connection points for our people instead of just mass hurting them in and out. It's, 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 about, it's not about building steeples. It's about building people. And if we can keep it about that, then I think we have a healthy balance of getting into the promised land. Now, I want to say real quickly in closing, because I'm flat out of time, if we're going to be Joshua's, we need to wear Joshua's shoes. Three sandals that we need to wear. Jot them down quickly. You must own your own leadership role. Everyone in here can be a leader. It's not about a positional leadership. It's about your personal leadership. It's about moving from expecting to being. And that's exactly what happened in Joshua's life. In Joshua chapter 1, verse uh, 1 and 2, it says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now that's a morbid thought. But there's a reality here. Moses is not here anymore, Joshua. Moses is gone. It's time for you to be the leader. It's going from being an expecting parent to being a parent. It's going from being an expecting leader to being a leader. It's going from being a Moses to being a Joshua. And it is time for all of us who name Grace Point as home to step up and to be a leader. Moses is dead. That generation is gone. It's time for a Joshua generation to stand up. Now, therefore, arise and go over the Jordan, and you and all the people in the land that I am giving to them and the people of Israel and every place that your soul will, foot will, will trod upon, I'm giving it to you just as I promised to Moses. We need leaders. We need great, strong leaders. I love what President Harry Truman said about leadership. He said a leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and like it. We need leaders. We need this room full of leaders who will go into other people in their body life groups, into their influencers, into their friendships, and say, listen, this is important. And it's of God. Peter Drucker, one of the greatest leader minds of our day, of our era, he's gone now, but he says effective leaders, a leader is not someone who is loved and admired. 
or admired. He or she is someone whose followers do the right things. Popularity is not leadership. Results are leaders are highly visible. They therefore set examples. Leadership is not rank, privilege, titles, or money. It's responsibility. Moses is dead. Joshua, you're the new leader. The first decade of Grace Point is over. The second decade is here. Are we going to have leaders like Joshua who will take on the responsibility? Leadership is influence into the future. It's not influence into the past. Those are people who live in the past. It's leadership into the future. Will you be a leader into the future? Here's another thing, another sandal that we must wear if we're going to be a Joshua is not only own our leadership role, and we need leaders in this church to step up and say, this is right, this is good, let's do it. Number two is we need to manifest strength. You'll notice in verse 7, 9, and 18, he says the same thing again and again. Be strong and courageous, for you shall be the people who inherit the land I swore to your fathers to give them. And then he says again in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous. And then down to verse 9, he says, Be strong and courageous. And then you need to mark it in your Bibles, but in verse 18, he says it again, Only be strong and courageous. He says something here continually to Moses, uh, to, excuse me, to Joshua, because Joshua realized that he was filling very big sandals. We have big sandals to fill in the second decade. And one of the ways we're going to do that is we're going to have to be strong. We're going to have to be strong. Strength is having the clarity and the resolve, commitment and determination, despite the pain, to do what I need to do because it's the right thing to do. In short, no pain, no gain. Now, one of the things, I've been, I was a, I've been a gym rat for several years. And one thing I realized after going through several gym memberships is that gym memberships don't make you lose weight. I don't know if you've realized that. New Year's resolutions don't make you lose weight and get in shape. You can go buy all the thousands of dollars of equipment and drink the protein shakes and eat the fancy bars and eat the stuff that tastes like cardboard. And you'll still be as out of shape as the rest, per, the rest of the person's. It wasn't until I got with a personal trainer, and the personal trainer pushed me, and whenever I was ready to heave from my heels, that he said, let's keep going. And we went a little further, and we went a little harder, and I began to see that the pain, I began to see results, I began to see difference in my life, in my physique, in my, in my mentality, in my everything, in my attitude on life, whenever I started developing strength. But you know, I didn't develop strength until I experienced the pain. Pain will come with this if we're going to be strong. Pain will come with this whenever I go into the store and I want to buy this and I have to walk away because I've made a bigger commitment to a bigger thing. It's kind of like buying tires versus buying a 50-inch HD TV flat screen. I mean, the tires, you need them, but you don't want them. There's nothing romantic about tires. A big old 50-inch flat screen HD whenever you can watch the game with the guys. Or you can watch Your Biggest Loser or uh, American Idol or whatever your poison is. And you can watch it in this big kind of high-definition form. That's so much more romantic. Well, it's time to put tires on our car. It's time to do something that absolutely needs to be done because it needs to be done, not because it's fun. I tell you, I'll say it again and again and again. I would rather do it the African way. It's a lot easier. Find a big shade tree. 
But that's not how you do it in America. I'd be much happier that way. But what we need is we need people, men and women, who'll say, Mike, I've never given like this before. I'm being stretched. It's hurting me. And it makes me mad to even think that I'm being asked. Heave from your heels, but just keep running. It's a part of the strengthening process that God is going to stretch us in. Number three, you must manifest courage. He said it four times. He says it in verse 6. He says it in verse 7. He says it in verse 9. He says it in verse 18. It's not only being strong, it's also being courageous. Courage is faith in motion. Think about it. It's one thing to say, I have the faith. It's another thing to exercise faith. And whenever I actually exercise faith, it's whenever I'm actually putting my faith in, in motion. I like the way Hudson Taylor put it like this. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary into an unreached people group of China many, many years ago. And he was plowing up ground that, that nobody had plowed up. And he said this. He said, God visions go through three different stages. First, impossible. Second, difficult. Third, done. And whenever you look at what we're looking at, all I can say, impossible. Impossible. But what we have to do is, if this is of God, if we're willing to jump into this, then it is going to be impossible for a while, but then it will become just difficult. And then we'll find eventually it will be done. What do we need? We need Moses people. We need Joshua people who will put on Moses' sandals. And what does that look like? Jot them down. Leaders to rise up and say, let's build. Now, some of you ladies that are going through the study of, of um, the book of Nehemiah realize that when Nehemiah stood up before the people, he says, it's time, arise, build. What did the people do? They stood up and they built the walls. We need leaders in this room to say it's time. We need leaders with strength, with resolve and clarity and determination and a high pain tolerance to say no to some things that we would normally say yes to. We need leaders who have the courage to move out in faith. You know what happens, and in, 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 in it's unfair to know the rest of the story because Joshua didn't know the rest of the story. Joshua just had to realize Moses was dead. He was the leader. He just had to have strength and courage. But there's something beautiful that happens in Joshua that you cannot miss. And if you read chapter 4, you'll likely miss it and skip right over it because you'll get into the other events of the chapter. But in chapter 4, verse 14, it says this of Joshua, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses. We need a generation that in 2021, when we celebrate our 20th birthday, we will look back on this day and say, we've had some Joshua's. And they were just as much men of faith and women of faith and women of courage and women of strength and men of, men of leadership and women of leadership as we did in our first decade. What we're going to do to close out our service, I'm just going to invite those who feel led, those who are like, I'm on the fence, those who who are there. I, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what, what, 
where you are on this journey, and I know this is day one of a multi-Sunday journey. But I want to ask us to pray. We've already been asking you to pray. We're asking you to pray. We want to ask you to pray corporately. And what we're going to do is we're just going to say this entire front is available for prayer. You can come and kneel here. Leadership, just commoners, guests, attenders, whatever, whoever you are. We want to invite you to come and pray. And just commit this time in yourself to the Lord. That God make me a leader like a Joshua. This is your time. You can come.